So getting people to come to the FBI and resist so much more money that they could make someplace else and stay with the FBI with all its bureaucratic frustrations was the central challenge of our personnel recruitment in addition to trying to get a more diverse workforce. And they still haven't solved that problem. James Comey is here today. Welcome to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. The former FBI director has written a novel, crime fiction. It doesn't get more real and fiction than this. If you've listened to Real Fiction, I, I have interviewed journalists, novelists, poets, philosophers, changemakers. Um, you know, but my conversation with James Comey marks the beginning of some new directions for real fiction. I'm going to cover that a little later. But for now, Real Fiction is still a production of Real Fiction Media Group. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you click the subscribe button where you listen, you'll be alerted to new programming. But for now, let's talk about this new novel from James Comey, Central Park West. My guest today is James Comey. He has written a novel. Central Park West is the debut work of fiction from the former director of the FBI. James Comey is the author of best-selling nonfiction books, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, and Saving Justice, Truth, Transparency, and Trust. This pivot to fiction has made Central Park West one of the most anticipated books this year. Central Park West is a true insider's account of a murder trial in New York City. It has been described as a kaleidoscopic crime novel, and we get to hear directly from the author today. James Comey, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. Oh, it's great to be with you, Lori. Well, I love this novel, both because it is a fast-paced crime story, but I think it also speaks to some of the most important professions that are in service uh, in this country. But before we get into the really richly drawn characters and the story itself, can I ask why Why did you want to write this novel? How did this come to be? That's a great question. I, I didn't, actually. Um, I was writing the second nonfiction book, Saving Justice, which is a collection of stories, real stories from my career to try and illustrate the values that we have to have in the justice system and the justice department. And my editor started, first of all, he started referring to the things I was writing as scenes. And he would say this scene, that scene. And I would stop mm. him and say, that's not a scene, man. That That's my life. That actually <laughs> happened. And he said, you know, you write stories well. Have you ever considered writing fiction, crime fiction? And I said, no. And then I resisted it and resisted it. But the farther I got from that book, and really the farther I got from my government service, the more the idea intrigued me. And I gave it a shot and found it addictive, harder than nonfiction, but more fun than nonfiction. And so I was hooked. And I hope, I hope I'm nervous because I hope to do this for my career, the rest of my career, but we'll see how folks think about it. Wait, I just want to hover there for a minute. You found writing fiction more difficult than writing nonfiction. Yes, definitely. Because Nonfiction is simply about getting the account of a thing that happened right. It's checking the transcripts, checking the details, checking the memos, 
so that your story is accurate. And imagination is forbidden. The, the hard part is getting the details right and then presenting it in a way, writing it in a way that's interesting. And fiction is, in a lot of ways, requires the writing ability, but asks you to do something much harder, which is to imagine something that didn't happen and stay true to that, keep the voices of the characters the same uh, as the readers have grown familiar with, keep the story sensible. And so I found it much harder than nonfiction because it wasn't a transcript to check or a record to make sure you were accounting accurately, but more fun because imagination was allowed and and I could live in worlds that were real because I had been in them, but also made up. And that's kind of fun. Yes, it is. And uh, there are a lot of questions in the literary circles about who gets to write what, who gets to write from what point of view. But first, I want to ask about the main character in this story, Central Park West. It is a character named Nora. She is an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And right at the beginning of the novel, we know this is her dream job. And what I love about Nora is that we're reminded that the profession of federal prosecutors is not really about the money or the the glamorous offices. It's really a calling. And I one of my favorite lines in the book comes early, and it is this. It's, Nora was fiercely proud of how dumpy the offices were, dented file cabinets as old as the building jammed everywhere. So <laughs> tell me about uh, creating the character of Nora and what you want readers to understand about this role that um, a federal prosecutor plays and really what they're being what they're being called to do in service. Yeah, it's a great question. I when I was first writing this, the character of Nora was a man and but I happened to be writing it while my daughter Maureen was on her feet in courtroom 318 in the Southern District of New York, hmm. prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator in abusing young girls. And, and my wife was going to the trial. Maureen forbid me because she said it would be a thing if, if I, I'm a giraffe, <laughs> if this giraffe showed up even in right. a COVID mask. And so I was getting accounts of it secondhand. And that inspired me to make Nora, Nora, and and when I wrote her, thought about Maureen. She looks like Maureen. She's chosen this career like Maureen. Now, it's the one I chose 30 years earlier. And in a strange twist, courtroom 318 is where I placed a lot of the action because Maureen was standing in that courtroom when I was writing. But it's also the very same courtroom that I prosecuted John Gambino and Joe Gambino mobsters when she was a little girl. And so it made that place special for me. And to be able to picture my daughter while writing about this work was fun and and easy in a lot of ways. Mm. That was the part of the writing that was easy. And I tried to capture, not in a sanctimonious way, but the way in which a sense of mission pervades that work and the way in which these people who are flawed People struggling with, as Nora is, single motherhood and lots of other burdens are trying to get it right. And and in my lived experience, that is the rule. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There are police officers and investigators and prosecutors who bring shame on the profession. But in the main, there are people trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, and then trying to do it and abiding by the rules. 
And so I tried to paint these characters as real people, but consistent with my experience, not perfect people, but, but people who are drawn by the mission, not by the dough, because there is no dough, and trying to do the right thing. That is part of the um, immense appeal of this book, the fact that you have lived and worked in these offices. And it's amazing that your daughter is working in the same office. Perhaps some of your files are in these dented file cabinets <laughs> as she as she passes them in the, in the hallways and the offices. But another character that comes through in this story is uh, Jessica Watson, and she is an FBI special agent. And wow, this book explains so much about the connection between federal prosecutions and the support role that uh, the FBI often plays in these these um, deliberations, the court hearings, the entire process. I mean, I think people have maybe a passing uh, familiarity with how this works, but this is a very detailed account. And I love that you bring Jessica Watson's backstory in because as you were just describing, these these roles, these jobs are are callings. And I wonder if you can talk about a little bit about the process of recruiting um, people for FBI positions or for federal prosecutor positions. And did writing this book make you think a little differently about both the uh, recruitment and the retention process? Because that's something that we are dealing with in the real world today. Yeah. I, so Jessica is a new agent, as you said, for what they call a first office agent in New York. She's a black woman and she came from background as a high school teacher in Northern California. And, and so Jessica reflects my dream, my hope, and my great regret about my FBI service because I wanted to spend a decade, my full 10-year term, trying to get more people like Jessica into the FBI mm. because it, it's not only the right thing to do, the, the institution needs it to be effective in a country that's getting more complicated, in my view, more wonderful. And the FBI was getting less complicated when I got there. When I got there, more and more and more of our agents look like me and I'm a white male. And Nothing wrong with being a white male, but our to be effective in our country and to be trusted in our country, it can't all be me. And so I loved writing the character of Jessica because I could picture her. She's not based on a particular person, but she's based on a lot of people I tried to recruit to the organization. Now, I happen to know an agent who was on my security detail, who was a chemistry teacher, high school teacher in Northern California before joining the FBI. So, but so Jessica reflects both my hope and my and my regret, frankly, that I didn't get to finish that work. And I, the day I was fired in May of 2017, I was in California to do a diversity recruiting event. I was due that night to meet with 750 engineers, lawyers, MBAs of color to pitch them on the FBI. And what was the reason I loved those events and went halfway across, all the way across the country to do them is that it worked. When I could get on a stage and speak to talented young people and explain to them what it's like to have a job where your obligation, your sworn obligation, is only to do the right thing as best you can. And, and what a welcoming organization the FBI is, despite some of the disturbing trends in diversity, 
nobody leaves the FBI because they discover what it's like once they get inside. Once I could show that to a talented audience, I was going to walk out of that night in California with half of those people applying to be FBI special agents just based on the yield in Houston and Washington, D.C. and other places. So this was maybe the most important thing I was doing for the FBI and why I grieve not having finished my term. And Jessica reflects that. And I'm so glad you noticed her as a character. I think Jessica stands out because, um, and, and there was one line that really resonated with me, was that in the in her Quantico training, there is a, uh, I guess it's a, a survey that you fill out that you request where you want to go. And, and you list that New York was her 47th choice of, uh, of, of where she wanted to be stationed. So how does that process work? And what happens when uh, a fresh young recruit doesn't get what they want? Do they know that going in? They know the, the danger going in. And they know they're told early on that there's a selection process where they are given a list of all 56 FBI field offices and asked to rank their preferences. Now, the good news is 80 some percent got top three, one of their top three choices, but that still still means you're not guaranteed by any means where you'd really like to go. And a whole lot, so 83, so 17% didn't get their top three. And most of those ended up in one of the big offices where it's very expensive and difficult to live. So think New York, LA, San Francisco. And I would visit Quantico quite frequently because I wanted to see and talk to these young people that I was recruiting into the organization. And and there was a lot of people who were unhappy about where they went. And then at graduation, I would always meet the family, the loved ones of each of the graduates to thank them for this young person that they had raised or that they were supporting. And, and oftentimes I found myself apologizing for where they were going, but they understood because of the mission of the FBI. It's not about them. It's about what does the organization need? What does the country need? And oftentimes the country needs their talent in places that will be hard for them to go. And But I'll finish with a piece of good news. When you speak to them, if they've been sent to LA or San Francisco or New York, two years later, they're glad they went because they were pushed out of their comfort zone And they were introduced to some of the most interesting work the Bureau does, which is done in those big places. So most people end up pretty happy. That doesn't solve our retention problem, especially for our tech talent, but most of them end up understanding why they were sent where they were sent. My guest today is James Comey. He has just written a novel titled Central Park West. In the novel, we are in New York City, and the Southern District of New York is at the center of the trial. And I think that that is that has such a storied reputation in American history. Uh, when you joined, uh, when you became a federal prosecutor and were assigned to the Southern District of New York, um, at that time, um, mafia prosecutions were kind of at the top of the the list. You mentioned in the book that the mafia trials don't hold the same sway or attention. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that. I think two things have happened that have made the mafia less prominent in the public imagination. The first is law enforcement in this country made over the my career, not because of me, but because of a lot of great people, progress against the major mafia bosses and families. 
and maybe the most important way they did that is a way that's boring that most people don't know about, but by suing to take over unions that the mob controlled because unions were a source of tremendous cash that the mob stole from the members. And so they drained the mob of its power, of its lifeblood in the 80s and 90s and first decade of the 2000s. And that that hurt the mafia a lot. Uh, and I think the, the lack of those prominent bosses, the prominent trials reduced its presence in the public imagination. And the, the, the challenge, though, is it's still there. And I know this from talking to Maureen, who was the chief of the violent, violent and organized crime unit when I was writing this, that it's still there. It's just of less interest to the media. And maybe some of that is people just focused on other things. But the bosses of, of yesteryear, John Gotti, Paul Castellano, f- sort of famous names are not in the media. And I'll say one other reason why, because the bosses learned that if you start wearing fancy suits and walking up and down the street, the FBI is going to decide they're going to change your life and focus mm. energy on you that you do not want focused on you. I mean, John Gotti's big mistake was insisting that all of his capos come visit him once a week. And that made it easy for the FBI to take pictures and then to prove these people were part of a conspiracy. And so two things have happened. A lot of the bad, big bad guys were put away and the ones that replaced them got smarter and so dropped below the radar. That brings up something else um, from your novel that I found really fascinating. Um, There's a scene with Nora and her supervisors and they're discussing what the defense team in the trial knows and they're do, and they're they're speculating by reading press accounts and i think that's sort of important to mention because i i'm gathering that federal prosecutors don't work in a vacuum and i so i'd like to know what do you want the reader to maybe think about or understand with respect to federal prosecutors and their connection with um, the media or how they view the media, particularly in today's media ecosystem. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated relationship because federal prosecutors often talk about how leaks to the media or misunderstandings in the media can make it difficult for them to impanel a jury, to get a fair trial, these kinds of things. And all that makes sense. But at the same time, the media is essential to the work of federal prosecutors because the mission of federal prosecutors is deterrence. They're doing the work both to incapacitate a particular mob boss and to send a message in two directions. One at other would-be mob bosses, that this is going to be really bad for you if you choose this line of work. But in the other direction, a message of reassurance to the public. We're doing our work your tax dollars are being well spent, someone is on the job to protect you. And it's important you send those messages in all different contexts. The most important I've seen in my entire life is what's going on now with the January 6th prosecutions, where the government is trying to send a shockwave of deterrence that says to those who might be inclined in the future to interfere by force in our constitutional processes, never again, never again, the cost will be extraordinary. We will find every single one of you, don't you dare. And so to get that message out, you need the media. And so it's a complicated relationship, both because they often curse it and often praise the media's ability Mm. to speak to the American people. So what does that mean for ethical leadership today? 
uh, this is something that you've written about for years. And I'm asking this question because now that you've written a novel and you've gotten into the heads of characters and mindsets that perhaps you hadn't thought about before, if you had to um, prescribe something that would that speaks to ethical leadership today, what are some of the core tenets that come to mind? The most important one is that transparency is at the heart of ethical and effective leadership in a public institution. If you lead a public institution, especially a law enforcement organization, it's essential that to the maximum extent possible, you show yourself to the people you're charged with protecting and serving. Whether you're a police department or you're the FBI, folks need to know what are you doing and why. And when you make a mistake, that you admit it and work to fix mm. it. And law enforcement in the United States is getting better at this, but its, it's initial response in law enforcement is understandable, and that is to hold everything close when, when that's paradoxical, because that seems like it's in the interest of the case, but in the long run, it undercuts the mission of the institution because people, it allows lies. You know That, that expression about lies <laughs> flying while the truth is getting its boots on, is more true today than ever because a lie can make multiple laps around the earth on Twitter before the truth gets its boots on. And the confidence and faith of the people you serve is your lifeblood. And so you must be transparent about the work you're doing and the whys behind it to be effective and to lead in an honest, ethical way. Yeah. Transparency is something that is I think part of the uh, existential crisis that journalists uh, and news outlets are grappling with today, it's, well, there are a number of things, but transparency is certainly part of the decline in trust in media. And I, I want to ask you about something that comes, there was a, it's a very brief section in the book, but I, I landed on it. And there's a scene um, in which Nora, I, be I believe it's Nora, they're talking about the media and reporters standing outside of the trial room and concerned about the rapid fire tweets um, that would be going out into the ecosystem. And then you had some very clever potential tweet headlines. You, There are more tech recruits these days, I imagine. There definitely are. And and. What I tried to capture in that scene, and I'm glad you noticed it, is how the, the individual participants, so prosecutors and investigators, might see the tweets as a negative thing. But So there are all kinds of downsides associated with the way in which technology pushes information into our stovepipes and just and allows us all to build our confirmation bias bubbles and then stay in them. But... But what I think that Nora and Benny and others at the what they call the line level are missing is that it's it's imperfect, but it's also a tool for that transparency that I think is so important. I I find televised trials sometimes frustrating because there's an incentive for people to perform those who are in the courtroom. But I like the idea of people being able to see the justice system working. There's some prominent cases that are going on this spring that that people get a f read on only by a reporter sitting in the courtroom and live tweeting it because federal courts don't allow cameras in. And so on balance, I like that, even though Twitter is a decidedly imperfect tool. 
because it allows people to get more information than they otherwise would, even though it's going to go into their confirmation bias bubbles and that sort of thing. So I think that that's a, that's a policy level and upper level consideration that someone in Nora's position can't see, which is why I painted it the way I painted it. Now, you mentioned tech recruits. This was the other major personnel challenge at the FBI is that we needed people to deal with crime threats and espionage threats and terrorism threats that were all coming at us through the digital vector. It's sort of the FBI was really born when criminals started using automobiles, the, the great speed change of the 20th century to drive across interstate lines. And so the state police in Illinois couldn't deal with someone who fled into Indiana. So the FBI needed to be there and it taught all their agents to drive and got cars for all their agents. Well, we were trying to do that, and the Bureau still is, on a scale that's orders of magnitude larger because the threat's moving much faster and it's everywhere because our lives are everywhere in the digital space. So getting people to come to the FBI and resist so much more money that they could make someplace else and stay with the FBI with all its bureaucratic frustrations was the central challenge of our personnel recruitment in addition to trying to get a more diverse workforce. And they still haven't solved that problem. This is a great issue of our time, um, recruitment and retention. And again, I think that's why this novel, Central Park West, stands out because it's not just an insider's account. It's an insider's account by uh, you. And I think listeners will really want to know from a craft perspective how you you did this, how you made this pivot. Did you just do a draft and then get feedback? Or did did you see the story from beginning to end and kind of know where you wanted it to go? Yeah. Um, first of all, I had a reporter ask me not long ago, did you use a ghostwriter? And I laughed and thought, well, thank you, I guess, in a way. Uh, the answer is no, I wrote it all myself. I've always loved writing. I am married to an amazing person in so many different ways, but she has, Patrice, my wife, she has read a tremendous amount of fiction. That's her passion. Mine was always nonfiction. And she has great story vision. So it started in a conversation with her over coffee where Patrice pitched a story idea to me. And I said, oh, that sounds cool. Because she thought, well, you were a mafia prosecutor in New York. You know, maybe there's a cool story. What about this? And so then I sat down writing a draft of a summary of the whole story and outline of the characters. And we just went back and forth. We sat down and talked about it. I went and wrote some more. And finally, we agreed upon the full story, everything that was going to happen in this case behind the curtain. Then the next question was, what will we show to the readers and when and how to do that? And I went away and tried to do it. And I wrote scene after scene after scene. And at night, Patrice would look at a Google Doc and she would comment in those little bubbles and say, this doesn't make sense, or this is great, or you ought to think about this character differently, maybe. And then I would repeat the next day, I would write and write and write. And so working with my in-house critiquer and editor, we produced, a, I produced a full draft, and then shared it with the kids, including Maureen, again, who's a federal prosecutor on her feet in courtroom 318, and got feedback from the five kids, then out to a circle of close friends who loved me enough to brutalize me. <laughs> to give me brutal feedback and their friends who know this world, former federal prosecutors in the main. Mm -hmm. And 
And so that is an iterative process that leads to Central Park West. Well, you anticipated that question. So Maureen had a look at this book. Your children had a look at this book before it went to print. Yeah, Maureen, I remember one moment she said, Dad, um, I know you've, you may not know this, but they moved the unit from six to four, from the sixth floor to the fourth floor. And, and I hadn't realized I had a lot of the action taking place on the sixth floor because that's where the organized crime unit was when I was the boss there. And so Maureen checked me on a lot of different things. And then one of my good friends, who's a federal, former federal prosecutor and a criminal law professor now, flyspecked it to make sure I was getting all the details right of the criminal procedure. And New York is different from federal because I don't want any of my former colleagues to say, I can't believe Comey doesn't know this or Comey doesn't remember this. Details that most readers wouldn't even notice. This, my goal was to have this be the most real, the most accurate fiction that you will read and still have it be interesting. I, I hope we've accomplished that goal. I've accomplished that goal. That folks find it fun and interesting, but it's also the, all the details are right. You mentioned that you want to write more books. And of course, there was an announcement that there's a second book coming, but can you tell us about what's next for you? Yeah, I've already written the second book. It's another part of the world of nonfiction was much more much more quickly paced between the books. And so I've already written the second book where Nora and her friends will reappear. Um, you'll, at the end of this book, Nora announces what she's going to do next. And so we're going to go there with her and see her wrestle with some very difficult challenges. And, and then I imagine again, thanks to the story vision of my spouse, I imagine, we imagine together, the third book, which is also centered in Manhattan and and involved maybe different topics. I'm thinking terrorism, would uh, something I spent a lot of time on would make sense. This next one is going to focus on, also be a murder mystery, but focus on the world of uh, prominent hedge funds and financial um, management. Right. that I hope people will find interesting and also kind of fun to learn about. So yes, there's a second book that's already in draft. It's out in the circle of friends to brutalize me. And that'll come out, uh, I guess, like a year from now. I have loved getting into the mindset of what it's like to pivot from nonfiction to fiction. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. Same. Thanks for a great conversation, Lori. You've been listening to Real Fiction. Let me know what you think about this conversation. Real Fiction is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. Please consider clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, and you will be alerted to the next audio program. And as I mentioned earlier, Real Fiction is ready for a pivot. The website is under construction, and when it's ready, we'll have kind of a mix of everything. For now, you can still go to realfictionradio.com while we work on the new format. See you soon, and thank you so much for listening. 